1 John 5, verses 6 through 13. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe has made God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son, and this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this eternal life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see you all today. This week, I just finished a book. Uh, The book is called The Escape Artist. It's by a London-based Jewish uh, author named Jonathan Friedland. And the book, The Escape Artist, is about a man named Rudy Verba, who escaped from the Auschwitz concentration camp in April of 1944 after two years, two years in Auschwitz. And uh, if you read through the book, uh, you'll find very quickly that Rudy Verba's main reason for desiring to escape from Auschwitz was to spread the word to the world about what was really happening in the concentration camps during World War II. Because, you know, the entire structure of the Holocaust was possible because of the deceit, because of the deceit of the Nazis. They had told the world that these were just internment camps or relocation camps. I know this is heavy. I'm getting to the point, I I promise. This is also what they told the Jews, that they bust to the camps by the millions right up until they murdered them in the gas chambers. And Verba's story is incredible. He went into Auschwitz at age 17. And at age 19, he escaped with one other man and made his way south across the Polish border into neighboring Slovakia. And there, in a, couple, uh, a few incredibly providential events, he was able to relay his testimony to many powerful people, everyone from priests to presidents. But here's the kicker. Most people refuse to believe his testimony. In fact, almost no one believed what he told them. Verba and his associate, they would share the horrors of the Holocaust in this vivid, descriptive eyewitness detail, only to be met again and again with these methodically blank stares and almost no reaction. People just could not process. They couldn't process, they couldn't believe that what was happening at Auschwitz was really happening at Auschwitz. They refused the testimony. They refused the testimony of Verba when it was a matter of life and death for the Jews of Europe. And that was the tragedy. You'll have to finish the story if you read through it. Thankfully, eventually he found someone that did listen and the word was spread throughout the allied world. These verses in 1 John, they're about another type of testimony. Uh, The life 
and death of Jesus of Nazareth and what it means for people. And the author of these words, the Apostle John, he wants us to avoid an even greater tragedy, and that's saying something, by the way, an even greater tragedy than not believing what happened in Auschwitz. And that tragedy would be hearing the testimony about Jesus Christ and refusing to believe it. That's what he writes about in our text this morning. So this part of the Bible, it, uh, this morning, it, it, it confronts you. It's speaking to you, testifying to you uh, with the key question of human life. You know what the key question of human life is? Do you believe the testimony about Jesus Christ? Do you believe the testimony about Jesus Christ? You know, one of the things I love about our church is the variety of spiritual states and experiences in the room each Sunday. You know, some of you are mature believers. Some of you have grown up in the church and always known and believed and loved the Bible. Some of you aren't believers but are curious. Some of you are skeptics and have significant reservations about the reliability excuse me, and the truthfulness of the Bible. And I, that's one of the things I find interesting and compelling about our particular church. And this particular text confronts every single one of us no matter where we are spiritually, with the core claim of Christianity. And it does it really in quite a unique way. And I think this is important content for us this morning, not just because this is just abstractly the key question of human life, but because in our world, it's becoming more and more difficult to believe in Christianity. Christianity is seen as less and less credible. More and more people are asking, you might be asking, why in the modern world would one believe in Jesus Christ? Christianity is no longer a part of what the sociologist, sociologist Peter Berger termed our plausibility structure. A plausibility structure is a sociocultural context for systems of meaning within which these meanings make sense. As an example, Galileo challenged medieval European plausibility structures when he argued that the earth rotates around the sun, when he argued for a heliocentric universe, not a universe in which the sun rotates around the earth. And that's, by the way, what got Galileo in so much trouble because what he was saying defied the plausibility structure of his age. It's why in ancient Rome, Christianity, which said there was only one God, defied the plausibility structure of ancient Rome, which was polytheistic, and it's one of many reasons why Christians and Jews were persecuted so heavily. For most of American history, the Christian message, to one degree or another, has been a part of our plausibility structure. But that's increasingly less and less so especially in the major cities in our culture. For so many of your neighbors and for so many of your coworkers and for so many of your classmates and maybe for some of you, Christianity just doesn't make much sense today in our expressive, individualistic, post-Christian, secular society. So what is to be done? Well, that is more than one sermon can handle. But at the very least, we need to have, I would argue, the intellectual and the spiritual honesty to at least give the Christian message a fair hearing, to listen to the testimony for Christianity. That's a larger task than we can accomplish in one sermon. It's part of our longer-term burden as a church, but it is what John is after today, I think. John's burden throughout this letter has been to tell his readers what he had seen, 
what he had witnessed in Jesus of Nazareth. He wants them to believe that it is true and and that it changes everything. That's why way back in chapter 1, he wrote this. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. We testify to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And John has argued throughout this letter that the false teachers who disagreed with his testimony are dangerous liars, not neutral, and that they should be rejected. And he's reminded us again and again of the true message of the gospel. And he summarizes it for us again today in these verses. So, will you listen? No matter where you stand spiritually, take the next 20 or 30 minutes and listen to the testimony that John gives. Listen to the witness that John provides. Don't be like those who refused to hear Rudy Verba. It's indeed for each of us a matter of life and death. So let's make this the main idea today. Christians believe the testimony that Jesus Christ gives eternal life. That's the main point. Christians believe the testimony that Jesus Christ gives eternal life. Let's look at these verses in two parts. First, Christians believe the testimony about Jesus Christ. John's just written in verse 5 that the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God overcomes the world. And he said that our faith has a victorious power to it. And now in verse 6, he moves to write about the content of faith, the object of our faith. Look at what he says. In verse 6, he says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And then later, verse 8, he says, For there are three that testify, that witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. John's saying there are three witnesses to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and that we should listen to their testimony. You know, these courtroom dramas are so popular. You might watch some of them. Judge Judy is like the worst, and then there's a spectrum to better ones. And, and there's old movies and new movies that are all about these you know, intensely filmed scenes where the drama is at a fever pitch. I always think of a few good men in Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson, but it's a 90s movie. That's, of course, what I think about. And, and the star witness, when they're called in, it's always kind of one of the linchpin moments in the narrative. And, and that's what John's doing here. He's calling in three star witnesses to confirm his testimony about who Jesus is. If you look at what he says, he uses that phrase, the water and the blood. That's a really weird thing to say. It's very ambiguous. And and this is one of those sections in the Bible, to be totally honest with you, where no one is entirely certain exactly what John means. And, And there's all kinds of interpretations for what this might mean. Some, for example, say that the water and the blood refer to the two sacraments, that water refers to baptism, the blood refers to the Eucharist. Others say the water and the blood is a reference to Jesus' death. When he died, there was obviously bloodshed, but if you know the story, when the Roman centurion pierced Jesus' side with the spear, water and blood flowed out. Others say it's a reference to Jesus' birth. In any childbirth, of course, there's water and blood. Blood. It's hard to know exactly what the best interpretation is, but I'm going to take a stab at it. Let me try to offer an illustration to help us as we dig in. If I were to say to you, I believe in the bald eagle and the stars and the stripes, you would know what I mean by that based on our context You would know that I mean I believe in the spirit and the values of the United States of America. 
I think that something similar is happening here. Let me try to explain. The first testimony, the first witness that John gives is that Jesus came by water. I think that's almost certainly a reference to Jesus's baptism. It's a reference to Jesus' baptism, which was the beginning, the inauguration of his public ministry. And if a Jewish person in John's day had heard the word water, they likely would have thought of the story of the Exodus. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt through miraculously parting the water, the water of the Red Sea. And as you go through the story of the Bible, water comes to symbolize baptism. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 actually calls Israel going through the Red Sea their baptism. And so Jesus' baptism, which the Gospels record with the background of the Old Testament mind, is Jesus taking on the role of Israel. Listen to how uh, the author Tim Chester puts it. He says, quote, John is baptizing Jews, John the Baptist. These Jews recognize that, in effect, they are like Gentiles. They need to be reborn by the Spirit through water. They need to re-enter a renewed land. Then Jesus steps forward from the crowd. He doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need forgiveness. He doesn't need to be reborn. And yet he steps into the water, the water that symbolized our sin and our judgment. Jesus is symbolically engulfed by the waters of judgment. All those stories of the Old Testament were setting us up to understand this moment. In his baptism, Jesus identifies with his people and expresses his intent to take the judgment we deserve. When John says Jesus came by water, he means that Jesus' baptism was not for the forgiveness of Jesus' sin, It was so that Jesus might be with his people and lead them out of slavery, not to Egypt, but to sin through water into a new freedom and into a new future. So Jesus coming by water means that in his baptism, he's identifying with us as our Messiah. He's saying, I came to lead you into redemption. That's the first witness. The second witness is the blood. And if water had an Old Testament idea behind it, then blood almost certainly does as well. When a Jewish person would have heard the word blood, they would have thought not of the Exodus, but of the Passover. This was the ancient story of Israel's escaping the judgment of God by killing a young lamb without blemish or stain and wiping its blood across the doorframe of their home so that when God's judgment came, it would pass over the house when he saw the blood. And then the lambs of the Old Testament sacrificial system served a similar function. They acted as atoning substitutes to teach the people of God that sin deserves death. But God accepts substitutes in the place of sinners. John is saying Jesus' blood is the final sacrifice. John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God when he sees Jesus, who comes to take away the sins of the world. When John says the blood testifies... He's referring to the crucifixion where Christ substituted himself freely and willingly for you and for me out of love for us and took the full punishment of our rebellion against God on himself. And listen, John would know because John was there. Did you know that in Roman culture, when people were crucified, they were almost always done so at eye level. Crucifixion was done at eye level. 
And it was such an agonizing, brutal way to die that we coined an entire word that refers to it. To the, to it. You, know, you know the word excruciating. That literally means out of the cross, from the cross. Jesus' death was excruciating, and John had witnessed it along with Jesus' mother. So imagine John watching his best friend, watching his Lord be put to death in this excruciating way. He saw it. He testified to it. He watched the response. He heard the centurion cry out, surely this is the Son of God. He saw the sky go dark. The point is that these are external, objective pieces of evidence that John is giving you to say that Jesus is who he said he was. At his baptism, the voice of God was heard. People were there for it. They witnessed it. At his death, the sun was blotted out. The dead were raised. People were there for it. They witnessed it. The testimony about Jesus being the Son of God is confirmed by these witnesses, by the water, by the blood. And there's a third one. Verse 7, 6 and 7. The Spirit, John writes is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three star witnesses give corresponding testimony. They agree, he writes. So whereas the water and the blood represent external, objective testimony, the Holy Spirit provides internal, subjective testimony. Which is exactly, by the way, what Jesus had promised that the Spirit would do. In John's Gospel, when Jesus is teaching his disciples in preparation for him to leave them, he says this, When the Helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will do what? He will bear witness. He will testify about me. So the Holy Spirit comes and provides us with with assurance, with confirmation in our hearts that what Jesus did for us really is true and really is powerful and really is meaningful. The Holy Spirit comes and confirms in our hearts that Jesus loves us, that Jesus has paid fully for our sins, that Jesus went through the waters of judgment on our behalf so that we receive the waters of baptismal blessing. That's what John's saying there in verse 10 when he says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in us and confirms to us and assures us and reminds us when it's hard to believe that we really do belong to God. Which is what 1 John has been all about in so many ways. The Holy Spirit provides an inner conviction, you see, that the gospel is true for me. That Jesus died for me. He's saying that that in itself is a witness to the truth and the accuracy of the gospel. So John is calling. You see it. He's calling one witness after another and saying, look at this. Look at the water. Look at the blood. Look at the Spirit. Jesus is the Son of God. There's a reason to accept it. There's evidence for it. There are witnesses that testify to it. Do you accept it? 
What do you make of Jesus? Is he believable to you? Is he beautiful to you? And what does it matter? Let's look at that second. We've seen the testimony about Jesus is that he is the son of God. And that if we believe it, secondly, we receive eternal life. Belief in Jesus gives eternal life. You know, as we've gone through 1 John, I've come to really like his 90-year-old way of things. John just doesn't have time to beat around the bush, does he? He says what he means, and he means what he says. Look at verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's why it matters, John says, that you and that I carefully consider the testimony about Jesus. Look at the water. Look at the blood. Look at the Spirit. It matters because belief in Jesus gives eternal life. And lack of belief in Jesus removes eternal life. He writes as much in verse 11 as well. This is the testimony. He's saying this is what it all amounts to. That God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Again, verse 13, here's the reason I wrote this letter, John says. I wrote this letter so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God and that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus gives life? That eternal life is only found in him? John's saying, listen to the testimony, listen to the witnesses, and believe in Jesus. That requires you considering and being able to answer two questions, both of which flow from this passage. The first question is this. What do you believe gives you life? What do you believe gives you life? Listen, all of us, all of us, because we're humans, and this is the way God has wired us, whether we admit it or not, believe that something or someone gives us life. We're all centering our hopes. We're all centering our dreams around something or someone, and it's usually something other than Jesus, because we believe the world's lies that life can be found elsewhere. We're all, to some extent, culpable in this. So the question is, what are you living for? What gives you life? Do you think it's money? And the freedom that money provides and the privileges that wealth will bring? Do you, do you think what's going to give you life is a relationship that right now is just fulfilling you in every possible way and you think it can't possibly let me down? Do you think what's giving you life is the feeling that you get when you meet everyone's needs and make everyone else happy? Do you think that what's going to give you life is freedom? Freedom to be and live out your true self and find your true identity. That might be the original sin of our country. That freedom means I can do whatever I wish. In fact, it's enshrined in our legal tradition. In no less a case than Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, Justice Anthony Kennedy, in his majority opinion, wrote this, and I quote, At heart of liberty 
is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. We think and we often live for the idea that freedom means hands off, I've got this, I know what I want. And we think, I'll know I'm free when I get to decide what's good for me, when every choice is a blank check of opportunity and possibility. That's true on the right, that's true on the left, and it's true everywhere in between. All of this is going to fail you. All of this is going to let you down. Nothing can give us life. Eternal life here and eternal life in the future except the one for whom and by whom we were made. God himself. Which is why St. Augustine, in his great wisdom, wrote this. The hope of eternal life does not efface the desire to live. It is the fulfillment of the desire to live. To live in a way that we can never lose what we love. You see what he's saying? He's saying the only way to find something truly worth living for, the only way to find eternal life, is when you rest in an eternal, unchanging, omnipotent being whom you were made to glorify and know. What is it that's going to give you life? What are you living for if it's not the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the final revelation of God? It is going to fail you. Second question. What is holding you back from belief? What's holding you back from belief? John says so clearly here that belief is the way to life. Trusting in Christ's work, in his water, in his blood, in his death, in his resurrection is the way to gain the son. And in gaining the son, you gain life. So what is holding you back? For so many of us, listen, for so many of us, it's that we feel we're far too gone. Too far gone. We're too dirty. We're too broken. We're too messed up. We've had too many failures and too many mistakes to really come to be known and and to really be accepted. We can't really let God know and let God in on the true nature of what we've done and what we've thought and what we've said and who we've been. And so we're going to shell up. We're going to go our own way. And try to figure it out. That's never going to work. If it's holding you back from belief, remember the water. Jesus Christ was baptized into death so that you can be cleansed. Jesus Christ takes you through the waters. And he can always make you whole. He redeems and he renews the most broken and the most lost. That's what he loves to do. Maybe what's holding you back is that you feel like The gospel is a solution in search for a problem. In other words, you don't see your own need in the right way. You think Christianity is old hat, it's outdated, that the modern world doesn't need it, that we've advanced beyond it. Do you really think humanity is our best bet? I mean, seriously. Do you really want to trust yourself? Have you ever trusted yourself before and that's really, really gone well? Really? Do you really, really think that we are the answer to all of our problems? We who've generated all of them? 
Remember the blood. The blood answers what is wrong with this world in both crying out. This is what it costs to repair what we've broken. And in crying out. This is the depth of love I'm willing to go to, to win you back. Jesus has shed his blood so that we might be pardoned. Don't let anything else hold you back. His blood answers what's wrong with the world in showing us how radical the problem is. And it answers the way back to God by giving us resolution in the cross of Jesus Christ. John is saying, look at the water, look at the blood, look at the spirit, believe. Because only in believing in the Son is life to be found. It's Christmas time. It's Christmas time. It's a time where we think about Jesus. It's a time where we remember what he's done. John tells us here as clear as day. He came to give life. Believe him. Let's pray.